Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. excited we are starting our series uh, in uh, the book of Hebrews. Over the last couple of months, we've been going through some, uh, some topics, and, but today and for the next six months, we are going to embed ourselves in one of the most Christocentric books um, in the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, I um, went to this really cool noodle shop, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, uh, because I don't want a whole bunch of people going there. So... No. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. It's, uh, it's called Mogu Mogu. It's on State College. And um, uh, someone opened my eyes to this place. And ever since then, I've been telling people how much better this is. That's right. It's much better, you know. But the problem is my girls don't believe me because their place is, um, what is it, girls? It's Copan, right? They go to Copan. And so they say, no. And I keep trying to tell them it's better. Um, and every time you try and tell someone something is better, there's always kind of a bit of a resistance, right? There's a bit of a, a like, what are you saying? Are you judging me? Is what I'm doing not good enough? You know, and, and it takes a lot of convincing to help someone understand that something is better. As we've seen over our series in the book of, Wis- uh, in, in the book of Proverbs going through wisdom, there are so many voices out there. Uh, Karin had three babies in the space of three years at three different, well, one in South Africa, two here with all three different um, uh, OBGYNs. And when we had a baby in South Africa, it was better that they slept on their back. You can't put them on their side. When we had our second one, it has to be on the side. And now it's like, what, I don't know, upside down by one leg? Who knows? You, You know what I mean? So, and, and so because things change all the time, we really don't understand what better means. There's also, like, really, how important is this? You know what I mean? The chiefs are better than the chargers. Is that a fact? It is true. But it could change this year, you know? If you have enough faith, it could change. If you're a seeker and, and someone that's examining the claims of Christ, this whole idea that Jesus is better... Um, would be the same as me saying to a non-football fan that the Chiefs are better than the Chargers. There's no no sense of connection. Um, And we often think that the idea of having no opinion of whether Jesus is better is inconsequential. We we, we think, well, does does it really matter? It does. It doesn't just matter in the context of eternity, but it matters because whether we believe that Jesus is better affects the way that we live our lives here on earth and ultimately the outcome of whether we will see him face to face. And so let me paint a little bit of a context of the book of Hebrews. Uh, We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And my wife said, I'm not allowed to geek out about like, I had two pages about who could possibly do this. It's, you know. Um, One thing we do know is that this person was a contemporary of Paul because at the end of Hebrews, he references Timothy. And so we know that it wasn't Timothy, it wasn't Peter or Paul, but we know that it was a contemporary of this person. The letter was also written before the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem, 
It's important to understand this because Jesus actually prophesied not only that Jerusalem would be destroyed, but that the temple itself would be destroyed. And this letter is written prior to the destruction of the temple because the writer still talks about the temple and the sacrifices that are going on there. This letter is an amazing one because it connects the deep truths of the culture, the history, and the covenants of the Jewish people and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. He also has an amazing way of managing the tension of the transcendent Jesus that is so magnificently superior to the prophets, to the angels, to creation, to the ancestors and heroes of of the Jewish faith, and yet he is so intimately acquainted with what it's like to be a human being on planet Earth. Every aspect of Jewish faith, as well as most of the heroes, are compared to Jesus, but they are found to just be shadows and types, and the fullness is found in Jesus Christ. And as we continue throughout the weeks, we'll talk a lot about what a shadow and type is. And so Hebrews, in a nutshell, is this, and you'll see it up on the screen. Why would you want to return? This is what the author is saying. Why would you want to return to your history, as rich as your history may be, or your traditions, as impactful as those traditions may be, when Jesus is the fulfillment of this faith, and he is superior to, preeminent in, complete, higher, or simply put, better than. What he is talking about here is that he is saying that Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the angels in chapters 1 and 2. Christ is better than Moses, who was given the law in order to be able to help Israel through the desert. He is better than Joshua, who led the Israelites into the promised land. That Jesus is better than Aaron and the other high priests. That Jesus is better than the old covenant. In fact, he's the fulfillment of the new covenant in chapter 8. That he is the better sanctuary that um, is not only better than the tabernacle, but the temple that the Israelites have. He's better than the system of sacrifices. And then in chapter 11 to 13, he says to us, therefore, because Jesus is better than all of these things, I want to encourage you not to fall away. I want to encourage you not to return to these old ways, and I want to encourage you not to give up. That is Hebrews in a nutshell. You're like, okay, can we go home? No, we've just started. Well, but Nick, I'm not Jewish, and I'm not planning on returning to a system of laws and sacrifices. I'm not planning to return to ritual cleansings. I'm not planning to return to any of those things. So why are we studying this? We're studying this book because it is an encouragement to persevere in the midst of opposition, persecution, and exclusion. It means that we are being opposed and persecuted and excluded from families and friends, but we're also being sidelined through cultures and governments. This is not a new thing. Uh, the, the Hebrews were experiencing that throughout the then known world. Letters that are written to the Romans and to the Colossians, it's the same kind of thing. But specifically what was happening is that the Hebrews that had come to recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah had begun to return to their system of sacrifices because the persecution was less. Now, how was it less, Nick? Because at the time, what was happening, when the Roman Empire was ruling what included Israel, there was what was called this um, kind of deal that they'd come up with with the Israelites. 
in the sense that everyone had to worship the emperor, and yet the Israelites had this kind of special clause where they were still allowed to worship their gods. And so the persecution was less for those that were part of the old covenant, more for those that considered Jesus to be the king of everything. It's a current caution and a reminder that whatever people, whatever culture, whatever the media, whatever the world tells us is better, there is no comparison to Jesus. We are to look to Him because He is the reality and everything else is a shadow. Now, within our broader church, we are not necessarily in danger of returning to these practices. And I would say the irony is that we are more in danger of creating a new set of practices that we think are better than Jesus. And what are some of the things that we consider to be better than Jesus? I think maybe one of the things we consider that are better than Jesus in the way in which Jesus through the Gospels and the writers of the New Testament through the Holy Spirit have told us is that personal autonomy is key. And we unshackle personal autonomy from biblical foundations or from communal responsibility. That ultimately our highest goal is for comfort, convenience, safety, and security. That we want a small world that we can manage and control. We want a God that doesn't offend our sensibilities. We want to shape God into whatever our political leanings are. There are no absolute truths. The only thing that is important is my subjective reality, which is my truth. We want a connection to the head, Jesus, without a connection to the body. We want to be accepted by society at large. And we want a faith that is free from denial, suffering, trial, and persecution. Ultimately, what we need is a fresh revelation of the supremacy of Christ. So let's look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, we come before You this morning just deeply grateful for the way in which Your word has been preserved for us. But we are even more grateful that You still currently speak to us that you speak to us through your word, that it is made alive through the Holy Spirit. And I pray this morning that as we sit and as we listen, we would listen with ears that have been activated by your spirit, that our hearts would be soft, uh, and that our spirits would be open to hear what your spirit is saying to the church, in Jesus' name. Wow, these three verses are packed with salvation theology, just in, in literally three verses as he begins. And so he's answering three questions. Who is he? What has he done? And what is he continuing to do? And so he answers these and he says that Jesus is God's son. He has purified you from your sin and he will uphold you and sustain you. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God didn't just speak once. There wasn't one moment 
where God spoke, and then we just have to come back to that one moment and say, remember, this is when God spoke. God spoke throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. God spoke through the New Testament by Jesus, and God continues to speak to us. The Bible is a collection, not as much of what God said, but what He did. The Bible shows us what he did when, when he split the Red Sea, when he gave the law, when, um, when he worked through the prophets. It's an amazing um, outpouring of the nature and character of God. We don't have to guess what God is like. It's all in here. It's all in here, spoken through prophets, through poets, through kings, through queens, through angels, even through a donkey. God has spoken through all of these things. And through the Old Testament, the prophets foretold that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come and that he would rescue his people from sin and that he would inaugurate a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. Verse 2, in those days, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, the created world and the Bible are like God's love letters to us. There is a sense of connection that we have with that. As you know, Karen and I dated in the days prior to email and prior to cell phones. Um, and so we used to write each other letters. And I know, it was so cute. And Karen would, would actually uh, get some paint and she would paint on the envelope. And then she would send me some things in the... Yeah, it was so cute, you know. I, I still have those. I still have those. And, um, and I, would re, I, would, I would get those when I, oh, I couldn't see her, and I would open them, and it, it would be amazing. But imagine how idiotic it would be if I had the opportunity to spend time with Karen, and I said, no, I'm just going to spend time here with the, with the letters. No, because the letters talk about a time where we will be together. And the letters were also about saying the things that we enjoy about each other, the things that we miss about each other, but actually soon we're going to be together. And creation is like that, and the Bible is like that. There, there, is, this, there is this sense in which God is speaking to you, whether you are a believer or whether you're not, God is speaking to you, but what he's saying is, I, I want to be with you. And so, yes, we have a high value of the Word of God, but the Word of God is not God. It is the Word of God. It is God's revelation to us. It is an invitation to intimacy. It is an invitation to relationship. It shows us how we are to relate to Him. But through Jesus, God is with us. And when Jesus was born, one of His names was Emmanuel, God with us. It means that we don't just have the letters. We don't just have creation to show us what God is like. The writer of Hebrews shows us that Jesus is responsible for creation. We know that because Paul shows us that through Colossians and through Ephesians. We know that um, because it is also written by John in his gospel account um, that it wasn't just the fact that Jesus popped out when he was incarnated. In terms of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were equally involved in creation. But he, because he's responsible for creation, he's also better than creation. Now, creation does speak of the wonder, beauty, and majesty of God, but creation is an echo. It has no voice of its own. It can only echo the voice of God. It cannot speak of its own. Jesus came 
and spoke words of life and truth to us. God came in the form of the Son. God said, I want you to know what this looks like. This is how committed I am to revealing who I am to you and to ensure that you are not guessing or hoping that you understand what God is like, that you understand that your faith is firm and rooted in Jesus Christ. And we have the historical fact of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walking on this earth. We know that because secular historians can show us that Jesus was a breathing, living person, God incarnate. We don't have to guess and hold that by fact. That's a reality that we can stake our faith on. So if Jesus is God's son, the joy of this is that it helps us understand who we are. Because the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image, but Jesus is God's image. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. What a beautiful verse. That everything you understand of God is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to gather that. If, if we are made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God, what, what does that look like? And I'm, I'm hoping this is going to connect with you. Let me show you this photo. Okay. Um, that is Mount Everest. It doesn't look that impressive, right? Hey, uh, thanks, babe. But you know what I mean. It's taken, taken off a phone. So what do we do? We decide, you know what? We need some editing. So let's edit it, right, better, right? So this was when I was in Nepal, we were flying around Everest. Show me the other photo on the back side of it. Okay, that's a little more impressive. That's the right side. So when you go on the plane, um, because people on the left and on the right want to get the same view, so you go, you fly around Everest, and then you fly around the back side. This is the back side of it. It's still really not that impressive. So let's, let's add some kind of color now, that, that, right? That's like a little better. Okay, so now you look at that and you, you think that's impressive. Now, I was, I was in the plane flying next to that. That's kind of a little more impressive, right? But actually, there are people that have, that have climbed on Everest. I mean, imagine how impressive that is. And this is the challenge that we have. When we talk about human beings being like the image of God, let, let's go back to the pre-edited version. We talk about human beings being the, the image of God. This is kind of like what we see. It's like, okay, I, I kind of understand what God is like because there are aspects of humanity, I mean, aspects of God in humanity. When we come to faith, when we respond to Jesus, it's almost like there is this like edit that is thrown over us. Like, now we, we kind of look a little more in, there, there we go, thank you. <laughs> come on, Ethan, you know what I mean? You know, this is what, you know. Now, I know the illustration has failings, but what I'm trying to say is this. The, the difference between the bad image or a image... Better. He's better, right? And when we come to faith, when our lives are activated and we actually understand, man, this is what it's like to serve Jesus. And standing on top of Everest, there is no comparison. And what the writer is trying to help us understand is that when we come face to face with Jesus, there is nothing that can ever, ever match that experience. That when you see 
Jesus face to, face to face, when we encounter him, the exact imprint and perfect representation of God, we have to step back and just stand in awe. Now, I was at the, at the foothills of the Himalayas, and that was way more impressive than these pictures. And what the writer is saying, Jesus, God's son, is the exact imprint, exact representation of him. The experience of God that you're going to experience is at the top of this mountain. There is nothing greater than that. When you encounter Jesus, the exact imprint and perfect representation of God, you step back, stand in awe, and feel the weight of His glory. Jesus is the fullest and final revelation of who God is. Now, if all this is true, Nick, and Jesus has come as the full and exact representation of God, and Jesus has spoken, then why is the world not listening? If all this is true, why isn't everyone listening? If this voice that is so much more powerful than nature, than prophets, than a system that brought order to us, why doesn't the entire world listen? Because the world wants affirmation more than it wants truth. All of us, actually, most of us, we say we want truth, but we don't want truth. We want people to affirm our choices and our beliefs. And most of us don't want to hear from Jesus because most of us are afraid of what he'll say about the way that we live and about the choices that we make. But if we ignore God on what a life that has responded to his grace looks like, then we ignore what he's saying about the solution to that life a solution to pain and shame and guilt and loneliness and meaning. Because we block our ears to what Jesus is saying about the kind of life that we live, we also block our ears to the solution that he's offering. What does Jesus say? Well, we don't have to guess because we have it in the word of God. In John 6, verse 47, Jesus' own words, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes will have eternal life. John 4, verse 14 to, uh, 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, this is the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who, are la all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Those are the scriptures that we know are the words of Jesus. And those are the words we want to hear. But these are also the words of Jesus. In Luke 13, verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are the words of Jesus. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so what, what we do when we shut off the voice of Jesus, because we're trying in our own strength to deal with whatever understanding we have of our own sinfulness and our own pain, and so if it's sinfulness, we're saying, well, the way to deal with my sinfulness is to pretend that I'm not sinning, or the way to deal with my pain is to pretend like I'm not having, and Jesus is saying, no, the way to deal with it is to come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The way to deal with your sin is to repent and believe, and life will come to you. And maybe that's why we need to get rid of some of the wax in our ears, or even where we've intentionally 
blocked our ears because we don't want to hear what the Son is saying. Because we've been so formed by this world. So that is what he's saying. His words are full of grace and truth. What has he done? Verse 3, after making purifications for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Now we're used to words like redemption and justification. And the word purify is specifically chosen by the writer of Hebrews because it's the way that the Israelites would have related to God in the sense that, and even, even Jimmy read it this morning, in the sense that we are dirty and we need to be cleansed and we need to be purified so that we can actually have an exchange with God. They were purified through rituals and through sacrifices and they needed to be cleansed. Now, this seems like a bit of a sudden shift from verse 1 to 2 to 3, and he purified them from his sins, but it's not. It's vital. And today, the church is bombarded with voices that undermine the need for purification because we know how damaging it is to consistently live with shame and guilt. We know how damaging it is to consistently live with, with this sense of, like, I'm, I'm not good enough. And so what we do is, is we reject that instead of coming to Jesus for the solution to that. We are much more comfortable believing that we were cute little children that just wandered away and Jesus came and he brought us home. Now, we are that. We are his children that wandered and he brought us home. But the idea that we don't like is that we are rebels that are polluting ourselves by the choices that we make. And only when we come to him can we fully be cleansed. When we recognize that our own way of living is the way that brings us this pain, is the way that brings us this sense of depression, is this way that brings us this deep sense of anxiety because I'm trying to solve this on my own. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he says that we are half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. The idea that, that we are rebels polluting ourselves in our own autonomy and that we can come to Jesus and be cleansed and purified, why? So that we can have intimacy and relationship and adoption and joy with our Creator and Sustainer. We are in need of purification, but the good news is that Jesus has provided that. Many of us will say, well, no, no, Je Jesus wasn't really the main sacrifice. Jesus came so that he could be a model of self-sacrificing love. Because we don't like the idea that we, uh, we need purification. We certainly don't like the idea that someone has to pay for their lives in order for us to get purification. So we've taken this idea that actually Jesus just came to model self-sacrificing love. True. It's not or. Yes, Jesus came to model self-sacrificing love so that we could respond to his sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins. It's not an either or. And today in the church, there, there, there seems to be this either or. Either Jesus is the atonement or Jesus is the one that shows us what love looks like. It's not either or. It's both. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, and he's also a model of what humanity should look like submitted to the Lord. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? It means that he has authority. 
When Scripture talks about sit here at my right hand, it means that this is the seat of authority, that Jesus has the authority to deal with sin, with Satan, with death. He did that when he died on the cross. More importantly, he did that when he was raised from the dead. The fact that he's sitting down means that the job is finished. So even in these four words, I mean five, whatever, words six, whatever, even in those words, seated at the right hand of God, there's just such a powerful reality. The fact that he's seated means it's over. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. We cannot add anything to it. He did it all. The fact that he's at the right hand of the Father means that he had the authority to do this. Imagine I came to you and I said to you, how many of you got student loans? Okay, let me not go there. How many of you got a mortgage, right? And I came to you and I said, okay, your mortgage is paid off. How do you feel? And then how do you feel? That's ridiculous. I don't have the authority to do that. Right? (laughs) I know. Now you feel terrible, right? Now you feel terrible. But the reality is this this is what Jesus, Jesus has the authority to say the weight of sin and the penalty that was against you is lifted because of what I've done. I have the authority to do that. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. It is done. It is finished. The weight of your sin is paid for, done, forever. The prophets couldn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. Aaron couldn't do that. Only Jesus could do that. What a joy to be able to understand that more fully. No human being can purify us from our sin. Not us, not anybody else. Also, no human being can deny that we are sinful. Only Jesus can say, you are wrapped in a white robe of righteousness because of the sacrifice that I paid on the cross. I have the authority to do that. I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. What is Jesus doing today? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If we attain our faith through Jesus, that it is a a grace gift that he has even given us the faith to be able to access, then we cannot sustain it on our own. Whatever I received as a gift, I get to keep as a gift. We are sustained through him. We don't enter a relationship with God by grace and then complete it, sustain it, or uphold it on our own. Well, that would be like the biggest cosmic joke. Like, here you are, you are forgiven of your sin, and now the ability to live a righteous life is all completely up to you. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will send my spirit, and my spirit is a seal, a guarantee until the day of redemption. Now, remember when Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed? Remember when Jesus prophesied that, Israel, that Jerusalem would be destroyed? It had to be destroyed. It had to be destroyed so the fullness of what Jesus could say about us, the church, would become true, which is what? We are the temple of God. That the Spirit of God lives in us. That we don't enter this relationship and have to work at it. We don't provide strength, protection, encouragement, and comfort for ourselves. Jesus is alive and His Spirit dwells in us. And so that temple had to be destroyed. No human being 
No human being has the competency to uphold you in a time of pain or sorrow or trial. No human being has the ability to empower you to say no to ungodliness and to live a life that is free from shame and guilt and regret. Now, we can help you. We can lead you in that direction. We can preach the truth of God. We can encourage you. But only Jesus is able to do that. And that's what the writer is trying to explain to us. There is only one person. Every, all of history funnels toward this point where Jesus the Son is speaking, where Jesus the Son is acting. Band, you can come up. So if we believe this, if we say, okay, we understand who he is. Jesus is the Son of God. We understand what he's done. He's purified me from sin. And we understand what he's doing is he is sustaining and upholding me. We look back at Hebrews and we say, a long time ago, many different ways, and in many times God spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. What could Jesus be saying to you this morning? I believe maybe Jesus is saying this, literally, his words from the word of God to you this morning. Whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will have a spring of water welling up in eternal life. Maybe this morning there is a sense of dryness. When Jesus offered you life, fullness, this, this well of living water, but you're thirsty. There's a sense in which I'm, I'm feeling dry. Like, I understand, Nick, what you've said. I've heard this before. Lots of people have preached this better than you. But in reality, maybe the Son of God, as promised in the Word of God, is speaking to you this morning. solution for thirst is to come to Jesus so that he can put a well of living water inside you. Maybe Jesus is saying to you this morning, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Maybe this morning you have an opportunity to actually just come to faith for the first time. And repent, we say repent, and people kind of come back. Repent is such a beautiful word. It literally means recognize that I'm headed in the wrong direction and turn around from that direction and run towards God. That's what repent means. Repent simply means what I was trying to do is not working. And I throw myself at your mercy, Jesus, because you are kind, gracious, abounding in mercy. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying this morning. But whether he's saying repent whether he's saying, I know my daughter, my son, you're dry. I want to give you a fresh infilling. What he is saying to all of us in some way is come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And whether you know him or whether you don't, there's the promise of Jesus. This is what the son of God is saying to all of us. And we do that because he has attained and he sustains us. We do this because there is no better, 
name than the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the returning King. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing now in the minds and hearts of people. I want to thank you that in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of offense, or even if people are experiencing shame, God, I want to pray that you would come by your grace and just obliterate those things. And I want to pray that people would hear the voice of the Son of God calling them to rest calling them to repent, offering rivers of living water. I want to pray that as we turn our gaze freshly upon you through song, Spirit of God, that you would work powerfully in our lives. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, I pray. stand with me please we don't often do this but one of the things I'd like to do is um, read a liturgy we're going to read it in the first person to Jesus there's a number of reasons for this because when the name of Jesus is clarified it is warfare in our souls that's part of what we gather, but there is also a unique reality that Jesus is present with us now as we take communion as the body of Christ. And so on the screens, uh, there's going to be a liturgy that I've written based on Scripture, and we're going to read it together. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by you all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through you and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things are sustained and held together. You are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning, you are the firstborn from the dead, you are preeminent. In you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and you reconciled all things to yourself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of your cross. We were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but you have reconciled us to God through the body of flesh by your death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Let's take these elements with sober joy. There will come a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a privilege that we choose to make that confession this morning. There is no other name more beautiful than yours. There is no other name more powerful than yours. Jesus Christ, Savior of our souls, 
sustain us as we go this week for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team. Thank you for leading us so well. We really do want to offer prayer for those of you that need to receive some prayer for anything, uh, whether it's physical healing or whether it's a connection to the message or anything else. If you would like to receive prayer on my left to your right. For the rest of us, we're going to meet in the back and continue our gathering through fellowship. Let's go out there, be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.